You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 88. Hello again, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the second part of my Metamore City Christmas story, A Wizard Family Solstice. If you haven't listened to part one of this story, you'll want to go back to episode 87 before continuing on with this week's installment. The following recap will contain spoilers. John Tunstall is a talented young wizard who is apprenticed to Artax, the owner of the spells for You magic shop. Artax recently got into some trouble with the Imperial Minister of Intelligence. See the novel Things Unseen for details on why. And this has forced him and John to go on the run. Rather than leave behind his beloved shop, however, Artax simply took the shop with him. Through means that John can't begin to understand, Spells for You now moves to a new location every night, each time disguising itself as a different store. While the signage and the window displays change, however, the rest of the shop remains the same, including the apartment in back where John and Artax live. After a busy morning dealing with holiday shoppers, John took his lunch break in the mall food court. There he met Esme, a tall and striking Sathmoran woman, with copper-red hair and vivid green eyes. Esme proceeded to flirt with John, and revealed that she was a fellow mage, and a powerful one, judging by the strength of her aura. She told John that she had seen herself meeting him in this food court, and that they would go back to his shop together. What would happen after that? Well, there were lots of options to explore. John was definitely interested, but he didn't want to get Artax mad at him by having sex with Esme when he was supposed to be running the shop. He made her a counteroffer. He would show her where the shop is, and if she came back at closing time, he would let her in. Before they parted ways for the afternoon, Esme let slip one other fact. She had been Artax's apprentice once, and they did not seem to have parted under the best of circumstances. Esme returned that night, and lured John outside the shop, where she immediately started making out with him. John's arcane aura unconsciously spread out to cover Esme's, and in that moment she led John inside the shop. But just as they were about to get busy in one of the back rooms, Artax showed up, looking very angry. It turns out that Artax had a ward on the shop specifically to keep Esme out, and by shielding her aura with his own, John had inadvertently allowed her to slip through the wizard's defenses. But Esme hasn't come to fight. In fact, she says, she's here to say the words that every parent wants to hear from their child. I need you, mother, she tells Artax. You're the only one who can help me. The tension in the room is so great that it takes John five seconds to process what she just said. Wait a minute, he says. Mother? A Wizard Family Solstice A Holiday Tale of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester 
Part 2, Mother and Child. John's question seemed to snap the two wizards out of their standoff. Artax cleared his throat, begrudgingly stated that they'd all be much more comfortable discussing matters over tea, and then led the way up to the flat he now shared with John. Esme looked around with apparent appreciation as she stepped into the front sitting room. "'Oh, this is lovely,' she said, taking in the comfortable overstuffed love seat, the armchairs, the tapestries on the walls, and the coffee table in the middle with its elegant porcelain tea service. "'I'm glad to see you've still got the homemaker instinct, at least.' Artax grunted and ambled to the adjoining kitchen, where he busied himself with putting the kettle on. "'You might as well make yourself comfortable, lass. I'm sure Master Tunstall will have questions.' "'That's an understatement,' John said. Esme perched on one side of the love seat, looking almost feline as she surveyed the room. Her eyes fell on John, and she patted the seat beside her in invitation. John sat on one of the armchairs instead, and Esme shrugged and put her feet up on the sofa, claiming the space. "'You called Master Artax's mother,' John said. "'What did you mean?' Esme traced a finger along the tapestry on the wall beside her. "'I mean she carried me in her body for nine months and then pushed me out of her vagina.' The bluntness of the words left John momentarily speechless. From the kitchen, John heard Artax grunt again, possibly in amusement, but he added nothing further. "'How is that possible?' John said. "'I mean, I know he's a master of transformation magic, but I thought if a sex-shifted person got pregnant, the change was permanent.' "'Your master was my mother, Leah Freebairn, for most of twenty years,' Esme said. "'I'd say that's fairly permanent, wouldn't you?' John sat back in his chair, feeling dazed. Twenty years? I had no idea.' "'It's not something he likes to advertise,' Esme said dryly. "'We were living off the grid in those days. "'We had a little cottage in the Southmoran Highlands. "'Just me and ma'am.' A few chickens, two nanny goats, a flock of sheep, and the vegetable garden. And the magic, of course. There was always the magic. So you were his apprentice, John said. I was her daughter, Esme said, raising her voice a little to pitch it toward Artax in the next room. I did what daughters do. I learned at my mother's knee. I learned magic because it was what she did, and because I had the talent. She shrugged one shoulder in an almost insolently dismissive gesture. I thought I was learning how to be a woman, too, but I suppose I was just learning how to pretend to be one. Artax came back into the room with a steaming kettle. He poured the water into the teapot and covered it with the cozy, which looked like a fat, smiling cat. Give that five minutes, he muttered, then walked back into the kitchen. So why was he there? John asked. And who is the father? And why live as a woman for so long? And for that matter, why did he leave? Esme snorted and looked up at the ceiling. Welcome to my set of questions. He won't answer any of them. Gods know why. I particularly wanted an answer to that last one, since I just had my eighteenth birthday when Mother told me the truth about who she was. Who he was. 
Now that I was of age, he said, he was going back to Metamore City. He invited me to come along. She shook her head in disbelief, as if I'd want all this nonsense when I could have green hills underfoot and blue sky overhead. And yet here you are, Artax said sardonically, as he came back into the room. He eased himself into the armchair opposite her. Coming home for the holidays at last, Esmeralda. Esme sat up and faced him, giving him her full attention. If that puts you in a giving mood, then absolutely, let's say that's it. I need your help, ma'am. Artax snorted. John noticed that it sounded a lot like when Esme did it. You've made very clear for the last twenty years that you didn't want or need my help. Why the change of heart now? Now, at last, the bravado faded from Esme's face and posture. Because I want a baby, she said. For the second time in an hour, John felt the heat drain out of his face. Um, he said. Artax didn't look impressed. I hardly think you have to come all the way up here and seduce my apprentice for that, my dear. But that's the trouble, ma'am. Esme leaned in and peered at Artax, steepling her fingers in front of her. I can't get pregnant. I've been trying for ten years. I've seen every fertility doctor in three provinces. I've tried artificial insemination. Nothing. I've had my eggs harvested for in vitro fertilization. None of them took. They've run every test they can think of. Everything comes back normal. Slowly, Artax settled back in his chair. I see. So you think your trouble has to do with the unusual manner of your conception? Esme spread her hands. If anyone would know, it would be you. I've tried doing some research on my own, but you know what it's like trying to study yourself with your own magic. John grinned. Like trying to lick your own elbow. Exactly. Esme took off the tea cozy and poured cups of tea for herself and Artax. She glanced at John questioningly, but he shook his head. The two elder wizards, the mother and child, John supposed, raised their teacups to each other, as if in salute, and drank together. I can't promise anything, Artax said. My ears as Leia were not entirely of my own doing. Something twinkled in his eyes, and a very small smile touched the corners of his lips. But for you, my dear, I will try. Something softened in Esme's posture. She smiled back, and it looked more genuine than anything else John had yet seen from her. That's all I ask. Artax let Esme spend the night in the guest room. John couldn't remember the apartment having a guest room when he first moved in, but the shop was like that. It seemed to anticipate the master's needs and prepare for them in advance. Someday, John hoped, Artax would explain all the secrets of Spells for You, where the shop had come from, how it moved from place to place, and how it changed to suit his purposes. But John suspected he was a long way from such revelations. After all, he hadn't even known Artax had a daughter. A knock came at his door while he was getting ready for bed. His heart quickened in anticipation, and he quickly went to the door and opened it. But it was Artax, not Esme. The master must have caught the look of disappointment on his face, because he chuckled in dark amusement. 
Might I have a moment of your time, Master Tonstall? If you're not expecting to be otherwise engaged, that is. John bowed his head and opened the door wider. Of course, Master. Please come in. Artax entered the room and sat down in the office chair at John's desk. He glanced briefly at John's homework, a transformation spell he was learning to master, and then spun around to face John. John sat down in front of him at the end of the bed. The old man looked briefly down at his hands before speaking. I should have told you about Esme. I suspected she was in the neighborhood. John frowned. Suspected? You didn't know? Artax shook his head. Esme has the same gift of foresight that I do, but our abilities each seem to be neutralized where the other is concerned. Her presence creates a cloud in my perceptions. John made several connections then. That's why you weren't feeling well this morning, and why Esme didn't know what would happen after she came to the shop. Artax nodded slowly. He leaned back in the chair and looked up at the ceiling. And it's why I didn't know about her little problem, either. One more way I've made things difficult for the last, I'm afraid. John leaned forward, searching his master's face. Why did you do it? Going to the Highlands, living as a woman? What was the point? What were you doing up there? Learning, Artax said. About what? About being a woman? Raising a kid? That, Artax said, and other things. John spread his hands and gave the old man an expectant look. Artax sighed. You can't understand the answers if you don't know the questions, Master Tunstall. You're too young and too city-bred for any of this to have much meaning to you. There were things from my own past that I needed to reconnect with. There were things I needed to understand about my own mother's life before I could become whole, able to do the work that awaited me here. Our mutual friend understood that. John felt a little shiver. Our mutual friend was their private code for Lord Klepnos, the trickster god. Klepnos had brought John and Artax together nearly three years ago, saying that the apprenticeship would be beneficial for them both. In that time, John had learned that Artax was one of the gods' agents in the world. Klepnos had found the wizard during a dark and terrible time in his life, and had given him new purpose and direction at a time when he badly needed them. But Klepnos never quite explained why he gave Artax his missions, nor what greater purpose they were supposed to accomplish. Much of the time, Artax was left to figure things out for himself. "'I'll need your help to unravel Esme's problem,' Artax said, dragging John's thoughts back to the present. "'You don't have the same blind spots I have when it comes to my daughter. You may see something I've missed.' John nodded. "'I'm happy to help, sir.' Artax gave him a hard look then. "'Just you be careful around her. She's a trickster, as you've seen.' This whole business of wanting a child could just be a ploy in some larger game. John considered that. Well, sir, she is your daughter. Artax's eyes went wide, and he barked a laugh. <laughs> True enough, lad. True enough. He pushed himself slowly to his feet and headed for the door. 
All right, I'll let you be now. We'll see to this business in the morning. Good night, sir. Artax shut the door behind him. John lay back on his bed, thinking. Esme did not come to John's room that night, but she featured prominently in his dreams. The next morning, John made breakfast for the three of them. Eggs, sausage, fried potatoes, and coffee. Esme came to the dinner table fresh from the shower, with a towel wrapped around her head and wearing one of her father's spare robes. The robe only covered her to about mid-thigh, and the sight of her long, shapely legs was very distracting, as John carried the food to the table. Whoever she'd gotten her height from, it clearly hadn't been Artax. She looked appreciatively at the spread before them, then turned to the old man. Helpful, this one, isn't he? she asked, nodding her head at John. Master Tunstall has his uses, Artax admitted gruffly. He wasn't a mourning person, and John didn't take the surly tone personally. Are you sure I can't steal him away from you? Esme asked, casting a mischievous look up at John. I could do with an apprentice. I imagine I might put him to a few more uses than you do. John blushed, but he also felt a little thrill of victory. So, her attraction to him hadn't just been an act to get past the master's wards. Some of last night's fantasies began to dance through his imagination again. You're both of age, Artax said dismissively. Your choices are your own. That said, I would remind you that Master Tunstall and I are currently wanted by the Ministry of Intelligence. Until that business is cleared up, he would be well advised to remain here. The remainder of breakfast was, thankfully, free of any further discussion of their fugitive status. Artax remained mostly silent, except for the occasional grunt, while John asked Esme about her life after her mother's departure. I went to university in Silvassa, she said. Still too large a city for my taste, but at least it was close to home. What did you study? Besides magic, I mean. Public health, Esme said. Poverty's a great problem in the Highlands, with all that entails. There's a lot of preventable illness. Artax snorted. (laughs) Aye, a lot of fools drinking and smoking themselves into an early grave. Esme gave him a sharp look. Didn't you tell me you were one of those fools once? I, Artax said, unrepentant. And then I made different choices. I didn't need some some meddling do-gooder bureaucrat to tell me what was good for me. John cleared his throat. Well, not everyone has a mutual friend to help them out of a hard spot. Artax glared daggers at John but then he harumphed and lowered his eyes to his plate again. I'm just saying, a mage with your talents could have been a guildmaster by now. Esme reached across the table and put her hand over Artax's. She leaned in closer, trying to look him in the eye. Ma'am, it's all right. I'm happy with my work. I'm going to live a long time. There's plenty of time to pass on what I've learned. She paused. Besides, I'd prefer to pass it on to my own daughter first, the way you taught me. She squeezed Artax's hand gently. The old man's eyes darted up to hers for a moment. Then he cleared his throat and looked away. 
<clears throat> we'd uh, best get moving on your problem. I've had a few thoughts since last night. After breakfast, they headed down to the laboratory. Artax had a truly astonishing variety of magical instruments, most of which looked like they were cobbled together from used clock parts and old astronomical equipment. Even after three years, John still didn't know the functions of more than half of the devices. Artax gestured at a round stool under an intricate array of lenses, crystals, and what looked like brass telescopes. Have a seat, lass. Esme sat, crossing her legs in a manner that made John imagine her doing the opposite. She placed her hands one atop the other in her lap, then winked at John. John didn't notice Artax giving him instructions until the old man swatted the back of his head. Focus, boy, he snapped. We have work to do. Now go bring me three mana batteries from the back room. Sorry, master, John said, and went. The mana batteries were enchanted cylinders about half a meter tall, each of which weighed about twenty kilos. Each one could store about as much mana as John could call up in the space of a month. He plugged the batteries into the device in the appropriate locations, which Artax had clearly marked and fitted with one-way couplings to ensure the correct direction of flow. The old man pulled a lever at the back, and the machine whirred to life. The crystals began to glow with a soft pink light, and a humming noise emanated from a spherical brass protrusion at the top of the device. "'So what does this one do?' John asked Artax. The master was now peering through one of the scopes pointed at Esme, adjusting a set of interlocking dials around the eyepiece. "'It's a thaumoscope. It allows detailed examinations of the magic fields around a subject. I'm looking to see if there are any residual enchantments that could be affecting her.' "'Something she might have inherited from you, you mean?' Artax grunted in the affirmative. He moved to another scope, roughly ninety degrees away from the first, and began adjusting that one as well. I was under a powerful long-term enchantment when I gave birth to Esme. My body's sperm had been transformed into eggs. Obviously, they worked well enough for the purpose. He gestured at Esme as evidence. But the enchantment may have lingered in some way that affected her own reproductive system. Like maybe her eggs think they're supposed to be sperm, John suggested. A gross oversimplification of the factors in play, but for the purposes of discussion I shall say yes. Come here, I'll show you how to adjust the scope. Under the thaumoscope, and with his aura sight engaged, Esme's body looked like a swirling, shimmering cacophony of colorful magical fields. John could see the seven mystic centers, called Amalin, which ran from the crown of the skull down to the base of the spine— and which formed the central channel for mana in the body. The brightest of these was in her solar plexus. This was the Amala, where a wizard stored her excess mana for spellcasting. At Artax's direction, he zoomed in on the next Amala down, the sacral center. Life mana coursed through it in a continual stream, circulating out through her lower abdomen and groin, and back into the center again. What should I be looking for? John asked. Eddies, Artax said. Discontinuities. Areas cut off from the flow. Anything that looks out of place. He went back to the other scope and began looking through it. 
They scanned her for the better part of an hour, examining the body's mana fields from all possible angles. A couple of times, John saw something that looked strange to his novice eyes, at which point Artax would stop and look through John's eyepiece. Each time, the pattern turned out to be unrelated to the enchantments they were looking for. At last, Artax pushed up his scope and stepped back, making a disgusted noise. Esme, who had sat quietly in some sort of trance state through the entire examination, now raised her arms over her head and stretched. No luck? Not yet, Artax admitted, but we're a long way from giving up. Come along, we'll try something else. As it happened, they tried a great many something-elses that day. John followed Artax obediently from one experiment to the next, helping as he was bidden, as they scanned, screened, prodded, and probed at Esme's body, mind, and aura. A dozen hypotheses, each more improbable than the last, were raised, tested, and ultimately rejected. Esme never complained, but John could see the weariness creeping into her eyes and posture, and with it, the slow realization that perhaps even Artax, with all his brilliance and all his resources, might not be able to help her. Shortly after seven in the evening, Artax called a halt to the experiments. I need to do some more research. His voice was low, subdued, and he did not look Esme in the eye. You should go get some rest, lass. Esme put a hand on Artax's shoulder. I can help with the research. It's a bit early to turn in yet. Awkwardly, Artax reached up and patted her hand. I appreciate the offer, my dear, but I really need some time to think alone. He paused a moment, then added in a lower voice, I'm sorry, lass. Then he stepped away from her and began a slow, shuffling walk back to the apartment stairs. Esme watched him go, her eyes wide, her jaw twitching with words half-formed and then silenced. Her hand still hung in mid-air where he'd walked away from her. Hey. John came up beside her, close enough to offer comfort but not enough to crowd her. You want to go get some dinner? I don't know about you, but I'm starved. Esme closed her eyes and took a deep breath, then slowly let it out letting her hand fall to her side. A moment later, she answered him. Are you old enough to drink, John? Yes. Good. Because a bottle of Sathmore and whiskey is calling my name right now. And that was part two. Tune in next week for the conclusion, when John helps Esme make an important discovery. Sandra Jackson said, Only my characters truly know what's going on. I just hold the pen. So, let's check in on those characters and how their world is coming together. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,529 words this week, over the course of 5.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 672 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, 
I've gone 82 days without breaking my chain. Looking back on the month of January, I wrote a total of 22,809 words, over 30.25 hours. I wrote on all 31 days, averaging 736 words per day. Compared to December, my word count decreased by 27%, and my writing time decreased by 17%. Still, this January was my seventh most productive month since I started doing the podcast, which is not too bad. This week I got back to work on The Lost and the Least. Chapter 47 has been fighting me, but I pushed my way through the part that was hanging me up. Now I'm trying to build up momentum again so I can finish this thing. Over on the Patreon feed, we have another new patron. Please welcome Robert. Remember, becoming a patron is the single best thing you can do to support this show. Pledging just a dollar a month gets you access to my weekly behind-the-scenes podcast. At three dollars a month, you get more bonus art, previews, sneak peeks, and more. All you need is a PayPal account or a credit card. Head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make your pledge today. And now, the feedback. Daniel Stoker wrote in about the last episode of Divide by Zero. He says, Ha! Finally, I was able to catch up and listen to this, and I have to say I enjoyed it a lot. I had a feeling that he was, in fact, Klepnos, but it's good to see I was right there. One thing I found interesting, the end of the story had a very Heinlein, stranger-in-a-strange-land feel, with anyone being able to have their awareness expanded if they just put in the effort, similar to how Michael Valentine Smith's acolytes could learn his abilities— Thanks for sharing another great story, and I think your use of the audio medium for this, while maybe not as good as what you had in the print version, still worked, and I loved it from a technical standpoint. Thanks, Daniel. You're right, there are some parallels to Stranger in a Strange Land. The idea of grasping the true nature of reality through a change in perspective has been a tantalizing one throughout history. Every generation has its holy men and mystics who their followers believe to have pierced this veil. Michael Valentine Smith is Heinlein's manifestation of that hope, with the free-love, counterculture flavor that the author was so enamored of at the time. While it's far from perfect, Stranger got into the zeitgeist in a big way, and it's one of those books you can find yourself paying homage to without really trying. Thanks for the note. Ian Gordon wrote in with what he calls a very minor point on The Raven and the Writing Desk, episode 47. He points out that the author I quoted at the beginning of the weekly writing report was actually named W. Somerset Mom, which rhymes with how an English person might say warm or form. The G-H in the name is silent. Thanks for the correction, Ian. I appreciate it. Ian also writes, Loving things unseen, though. I wish I had found your fiction years ago. I'm even, slowly, catching up on the corpus of work in Metamore Keep, in order to better understand the deep backstory. Being the person I am, I sometimes wonder which variety of the curse I'd go for. All three options have their appeal, but I'm unsure. What about you? Which would you pick? Well, Ian, as much as it would be cool to be able to change into an animal, like a wolf or a tiger, I don't think I'd like the inconvenience of living with a fur coat all year round. As for the penomorph curse, no thank you. Going through childhood once was hard enough. 
For my money, the androgyne curse would be hands down the best. I've never identified all that strongly with traditional masculinity, and I love the idea of being able to shift around to different points in the gender spectrum, depending on my mood and my circumstances. Plus, the automatic beauty upgrade would be pretty frickin' cool. Thanks for writing in. Hey, Chris. This is Steven from South Carolina. Um, you're a genius. Appreciate it. Hey, um, do you have a world map, a uh, Metamore city map, anywhere online? I uh, poked around the website uh, a little bit, but I didn't find any. Hi, Stephen. If you go to metamorecity.com and click on the About Metamore City link at the top of the page, it will take you to a section of the site with some brief information about different parts of the world setting. The second paragraph of that About page has links to two different maps, a political map of Galendor, the main continent where the stories take place, and a terrain map of the entire planet, including the four other continents. The political map is a little outdated. It doesn't include the Republic of Lom Shiyun, which is in the area marked as the Arctic Territories on the map. Everything else is accurate, though, as far as I can remember. Someday I hope to have the map redone in a more professional manner, and at that time I'll make it more prominent on the website. And uh, have you considered putting a wiki up so that we can look up obscure references from the past or whatever, and it might help you with continuity? But anyway, I just, um, I'm loving the new stories. And can't wait for more. Thank you. Bye-bye. There are two reasons to have a wiki, and unfortunately those reasons are at odds with each other. The first kind of wiki is a resource for the fans. As you said, it's a way for people to look up obscure references they're wondering about and to otherwise explore the world setting. The second kind is a resource for the writers, and a writer's wiki has to include a lot of things you wouldn't want in a fan wiki. This includes spoilers for future story arcs, stuff that was happening behind the scenes of other events, secrets from the characters' pasts, and other things that you don't want the fans to be privy to. A good writer's wiki may also include lots of nitty-gritty details that you don't want to be set in stone, because you might come up with a better idea later. Metamore City has the second type of wiki, a writer's wiki. Anyone who plans to write stories in Metamore City can request a membership, but they're bound by a Creative Commons, Attribution, Share-Alike license for any content they create with it. They also aren't allowed to share any spoilers with the rest of the fanbase. Currently, there are 67 people who have access to the wiki, but fewer than 10 of those folks have ever followed through and actually written something for the universe. So I'm a little leery now about handing out any more memberships, unless I think the person in question is actually going to write something for me. As fans, however, you guys are more than welcome to create a fan wiki for your own reference. Other fans could help by sharing information from past episodes. I'd be happy to contribute by porting over information from the writer's wiki if it's requested for a certain topic. But since the writer's wiki is kind of huge now, I'm not going to try to copy over everything wholesale. If anyone wants to take on this project, let me know. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your comments in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, 
E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping new people find the podcast. That's all for this week. Come back next time for more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2016 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.